up with regret. I keep doing the same old things, same old sins, same mistakes. They lead me right to where I don't want to be. Lord, please remind me that. Welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am excited that you're here today, excited for you to hear this. I had the uh, the privilege to speak with Courtney Haw Lee, who is an author, a blogger, an attorney, a Christian, and she's many hats. Uh, a bit of her background, just briefly, and then we'll get into the conversation. Courtney graduated from Dartmouth College. She got her law degree from Case Western Reserve University. Uh, she worked at an attorney in Ohio. Uh, she's also pursued her graduate studies at Hartford Seminary. She has written her first book, and it is out now, and you should go buy it. It is well worth every dollar that you spend on it. The title of it is Black Madonna, which is a womanist look at the view of Mary of Nazareth. And so we talk about that a little bit. We talk about race and slavery and cultural appropriation and lament uh, about the historicity of Mary and, and, and different ways to view her. It is a fantastic conversation, and so I look forward to you hearing it. So I will be quiet now. I keep doing the same old things, same old sins, same mistakes. They lead me right to where I don't want to be. Lord, please remind me that I am free. Same old story. Courtney, thank you so much for making the time to come with us on today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Seth. I appreciate it. We were just joking a minute ago, and uh, unrelated, but uh, I, think it's, I think it's odd that we're discussing the issues that are dealt with in your book, uh, Black Madonna, and, and we're also recording on Martin Luther King Day, and so there's just a lot going on with, with the church and, and racial reconciliation and how we view, well, women, considering I have three of those in my life, so I'm, I'm greatly excited uh, for today's conversation. Courtney, I'm sure there are many that, that are maybe both unfamiliar with your book and or yourself, so can you kind of give us a background of kind of, just kind of your story, what led you to being the woman that you are today and where you're at in life, and then kind of dovetail that into what is the genesis of, of your most recent work, Black Madonna? Sure. Well, I have taken sort of a interesting path through a few different um, areas of career and experience and expertise. I uh, grew up in Western New York. I grew up in a very Catholic town, a very Italian town, um, where I grew up thinking that all white people were Catholic and Italian and had big weddings and cookies and all of that stuff. So that was sort of my, my religious frame of reference, but then also myself was I was raised as, you know, a black Christian in the black church and um, also some in sort of an evangelical church. So my theology uh, was rooted in that place and was obviously very different than all of the Catholic kids that I grew up around. I was really jealous of the first communion that they got to wear those little white dresses from JCPenney and the veil Mm -hmm. and all of that. I thought that was just so magical and fascinating. And I was familiar with communion, but I didn't, you know, kind of understand the reasons that they did things differently. And so, you know, fast forward, I went on to, uh, I got a degree in English from Dartmouth College. I went to law school. It was 2002 and there were no good jobs out there. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I went to law school. Um, I always find that people who are not attorneys 
are very quick to tell young people that there's a lot you can do with a law degree, and I uh, sort of disagree with that. <laughs> so <laughs> I went on, I, I had a law practice um, off and on for a short time. Um, I met my husband in law school, and we got married and had our one daughter. And so over the years, you know, I just kind of spent some time with motherhood. Attending seminary or doing some sort of theological study was always something that had been in the back of my head that I wanted to do. I wasn't entirely sure if I was called to church ministry, but I just loved learning about theology. I would stay up at night and go down the Wikipedia rabbit hole reading about religion and all of these different like deep theological concepts that just interested me in my spare time. So I ended up um, moving to a neighborhood that was very close to Hartford Seminary in Hartford, Connecticut, and I decided to enroll. And it was just everything that I wanted it to be. I really just dove into learning about theology in this academic sense. And it was at that same time that the idea for this book started brewing. Uh, we moved into a city neighborhood, and I ended up sending my daughter to a Catholic school. So it sort of brought me full circle with my daughter having this experience of being a, a black Protestant girl in this Catholic classroom. And the kids were actually getting ready for their first communion in second grade. And so she was bringing home a lot of what she was learning. She learned the rosary. She learned the Hail Mary. Um, they had, you know, like a May crowning of Mary ceremony in May. And it was interesting for me with my background that was sort of taught a very little about Mary and B, you know, what I knew was to be kind of wary of treading into some, um, you know, sort of sketchy theological ground, you know, Catholics, they pray to Mary and we don't do that. Um, and so it was really my daughter's experience and trying to figure out how to relate to her and what she was learning about Mary, which really excited her, uh, that brought me to wanting to to tell the story and to dive into this book of what Mary means for me. Yeah. Well, I'd like to probably end our conversation with the answer to that question, if, you, if you're willing. So, so kind of my background, I grew up in Southwest Texas, uh, around mostly Hispanic and, and Latino, Latina uh, population. And then I moved to Central Virginia and um, many of my friends are African-American now. I'm, it's it's a decent mix, but I know I am the minority in that. And so as I was reading some of your early, your stories about you were working and you were in the wrong neighborhood and, and whatnot. And so you're part of what you wrote about just broke my heart because I hear my friends say that and you kind of, mm. I kind of silo that as, well, it's fine. You know, it was just them. And then you, I continue to read it and continue to read it. And in the world we live in, it continues to happen. And it just makes me, just makes me so sad. And I feel like I've been sheltered from that. And so you talk in your book a bit about motherhood during American slavery. And I feel like people tread so lightly around those waters and you didn't. Can you just br briefly touch on that? Um, I think it is important for people to hear kind of that history and how that relates to the stereotypes of black women. I'd never heard the mammy stereotype as you talk about it. And so I was hoping you could, you could speak about that a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I've always felt, and I don't know if it was what I was taught by my parents or what I've picked up just in my black community, that where we are today was 
very much shaped by what happened to us during the experience of slavery. And, you know, the adults in my life always explain that some of the things that are held against black people today, like um, not having marriages and before children and things like that, and maybe that oh, black women are seen as being loud or overweight. Some of these stereotypes uh, come from things that were born out of American slavery. And I think for those reasons, I was taught not to be ashamed of the ways that we were different and to also just be very aware of the ways that the way that black people have been viewed in this country um, has been really shaped and twisted through this, this lens. Um, you know, one of the things as a black woman that has always sort of haunted me was the sexual abuse of black women during slavery. Um, and again, that's something that people really don't talk about. <clears throat> Uh, you know, for instance, in this age of, you know, Ancestry.com and 23andMe, all African-Americans that I know, we know that when we put our stuff in there, that it's going to come back, that we're mostly of an African descent, but that most of us are going to be anywhere from 10 to 15 percent European. And, you know, for black people, it's just common knowledge that we share ancestry with white people, but it's not through um, any sort of melting pot of interracial marriage, it was through sexual abuse of black women during slavery. And so for me, I did feel it was really important to talk about that openly, to tackle it. Um, it's something that for me has never been hidden and it hasn't been hidden in my circles, but I do know that with other people, it is something that's not talked about because it's very difficult. So um, that's really why I wanted to to address it. And I do feel that black womanhood in particular um, because of the fact that we systemically endured that abuse, that our families were very broken by slavery, that children were taken away, and they were had they had to learn to improvise a mother in a different way, um, and their faith was a big was a big part of that. Um, I think that you know black women during slavery grabbed a hold of the Christian faith um, that they were exposed to in slavery um, as a way to sort of cope and and deal and live with hope in this really difficult situation. Um, and you mentioned things like the mammy stereotype. Uh, you know, these are things that were born out of slavery that I think many people don't really even know are very pervasive. I think the, you know, the quintessential mammy stereotype would be from something like the um, Gone with the Wind. You know, the mammy was a big big hoop skirt and a kerchief who was very motherly, um, you know, kind of had this mother wit and mothered white children, quite honestly. I know that in the modern movie, The Help, they got into that a little bit, that black women would leave their own kids at home to go work as domestics for white families and spend a lot of time and energy raising their children. Um, so, you know, just some of these things, I think, are really woven into the way that Black women are perceived today um, in the media, in art, and by other people. Um, and for myself, it's affected the way that I've seen myself as a black woman. So growing up in this country with some of these insidious images that are in there, oh, black women are always, they're fat or they're loud or they're angry. Uh, I often changed my behavior to try to negate that. You know, I'm like, I wanted, I wanted to be super feminine and I wanted to have a certain body type. And I think because of growing up around a lot of white people and white images, 
I was really affected by these sort of these sorts of images subconsciously more than I realized. And so that's why in this book, I really did want to sort of dig down in there and really get into it and lay it out and try to make sense of it. Because I think that for myself and for many other black women, um, this is sort of the essence of, of our identity. And therefore that's where we approach our faith from. Um, It's from a very different place than, for instance, from the traditional white church or a Catholic church with a very white, blue-eyed Mary. And so, you know, it was really important for me to, to lay all of this out here, to, to not shy away from it at all. I, I am curious. Obviously, I'm, 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 I'm not white. I'm, I, I'm sorry, I'm not black. I am white. Um, and so I know my wife and I will have conversations about how we talk about our children and how they treat other people. And it is funny that my son didn't realize there were black people until somebody told him at school, because it's not really a conversation my wife and I have, because we could care less what your skin color is. But then he's like, oh, he's, he's, he's the black kid at school. I was like, well, why is he black? You know, so we have that conversation. And so how, being that you have a younger child, uh, and I don't specifically want to talk about your child, just that's not fair to her, but what would you say to, to mothers that are listening to this or fathers that are listening to this that that is something they can take home to actively counter, not counteract the stereotype, but 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 acknowledge it, it's, it's obviously going to exist, but to work through it in a way that hopefully when our children are our age, it is it is no longer the stereotype, it is it is more, more loving and, and, and our relationships are more honest and more open and more, more homogenous. Right. <clears throat> right. I would say that I just think it's important for parents to kind of channel some bravery to be proactive about some of these topics. Um, you know, like you mentioned that it wasn't something that came up and I, you know, I totally understand that, but from my perspective as a black parent, I felt that it was something that has been really important to weave into our conversations from the get-go because I didn't kind of want her to run into any surprises. And Mm -hmm. so I think that finding ways to be really intentional about the ways that race and images of other types of people come into your home um, is a big help. My daughter, you know, Disney princess and all of that, you know, she went through all of that when she was a little bit younger and it was very special to her that princess Tiana was this black princess. And so, you know, she had the dolls and the stuff in her room. And she once said to me, um, I noticed that Tiana is my favorite, but I also have Ariel and Rapunzel and all these other ones, but my other friends, they never have Tiana. And I, really was struck by that, the fact that she noticed that. And so I think for parents to, you know, really keep that in mind, to remind themselves that even though it's something that maybe they haven't had to think about on a daily basis, there are many of us who have had to think about that. And so I think just being aware and keeping a memory and being really intentional about what you expose your kids to um, with some purpose is important. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for that. I'm going to get back to Mary a little bit. So I learned quite a bit. I read your book directly after I read um, Dr. Kyle Roberts' uh, Was Mary a Virgin? I think it's called A Complicated Pregnancy. And between those two books, there's just a lot of history of Mary that me growing up as Southern Baptist, I did not get any of that. Um, And it's fascinating. And you talk a little bit about the Mariology and and the biblical Mary. There is a distinction, and, and you say it was 
the clash of Nestorius of Constantinople and Cyril of Alexandria, and I probably messed those words up, but there was an argument in the early church of whether or not Mary is a Christ-bearer or a God-bearer. And so why is, I guess, what are those two distinctions for those that are unfamiliar, and then why is that important? Right, and you know, I, you know, first of all, I agree that I also didn't grow up learning much about Mary, so I learned a lot as I was researching this book. And so that is a topic that was really fascinating and is very, is very confusing. There's a lot of nuance. Uh, so this disagreement between Nestorius and Cyril of Alexander about whether or not the nature of Jesus uh, was fully man, fully divine um, in an inseparable sense versus that his humanity and his, his godness had some subtle distinction. So it was really this question about the nature of Christ and the early church fathers trying to make sense of that and figure out what it is exactly that they felt Christians should believe. And I think that Mary gets mixed up in this because if we're looking at you know, Jesus's nature as fully human and fully divine, then what role does this human woman have in this? So I think that the Christ bearer uh, was a reluctance to name Mary as uh, preeminent to God, to God the Father in any way, or as preexisting to God, because I think that one could easily see, well, if God was God and then God had a mother who birthed him, that kind of hierarchically puts her in a place that's theologically uncomfortable uh, for a lot of people. And then I think in, in traditional Orthodox Christian belief, um, making her the Christ bearer, the bearer of the man Christ, I think could make people a little more comfortable in a certain way. Um, the church ended up coming down on being comfortable with Theotokos, or the God-bearer concept, um, and that was based on sort of the inseparable nature of Christ as God and man. And since Mary bore Christ, then she was, in essence, bearing God. Now, all of that being said, I personally, I still think this stuff is so amorphous and you know, I understand why it was so difficult for them to kind of figure out exactly what we believe. And I do believe that what we believe is very important. Um, but it's also just, it's so esoteric and it's so chicken and eggy and, and all of that. And so for me, it's not necessarily um, a huge question, uh, but how we get there, I think, was was really interesting. And it's good that I think the church kind of parsed, parsed through this. And I think that for me, Mary has made clearer the incarnational aspect of Christ, the fact that he was a man, that it reminds me, reminds me of that, because for us as, you know, a post-Easter people, uh, Christ is risen. And it's this very lofty idea, but the fact that he came through a woman's body and was birthed into um, an earthly situation, I think helps ground that, that human part of Christ for me. And I think that that's one of the reasons that Mary is such a crucial, such a crucial part of this story. And it, it gets really messy, you know, cause I, the virgin birth is a, a source of doubt for people. Mm -hmm. um, so that sort of 
segues into this entire, you know, second conversation. And so I think it is important for us to have these theological conversations. And if you dive into the stuff from these, uh, these historical church fathers and from these, you know, academic theologians, it can get to me just really, really muddy. And so, you know, I try to keep it as simple as possible and not to get too bogged down because it could, it could drive you a little bit crazy. I think it's a lot of cyclical, a lot of cyclical thinking. So I just like to remember what Mary's role is in showing me who Jesus is to me. Yeah. And this just struck me just as you were speaking. So our church is preaching uh, now and, 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 and this, this, this will come out later, but the Sunday that we just had yesterday was, was talking about what good can come from Nazareth. And, and I know many churches are preaching on, on the lectionary over the next few years. So I find it, uh, I don't know what the word is, not circumstantial, but neat, I guess for lack of a better word, that, that you speak in your book a little bit of the social class of those that were from Nazareth and, and just that, that people from there were just not, not worth anything. No, I, that's correct. And I think that, you know, I heard that as well, that, that that's been the text um, in the lectionary recently, what good could come out of Nazareth. This was not a glamorous place. This was a real wrong side of the tracks sort of place. And the class that Mary and her husband Joseph came from was a real low station back in a in an age when class kind of meant everything. And that's one of my favorite parts of the gospel is the fact that it was this type of family that was chosen to sort of steward this miracle into the world that it wasn't, you know, some shining king, like look at a King David. Um, I think that for the Jewish people, when they were waiting for their Messiah, they were waiting for someone like King David, who was going to come in very shiny and on a horse and king-like and triumphant. And instead, what we're given is almost like the exact opposite. You know, these poor people uh, from a place that has a bad reputation. And that, to me, is just one of the coolest things about the gospel, that it was, you know, it was these people who, who were chosen. So for me, I just think that's, I think that that's amazing. I think it's an amazing thing to remember kind of as we're looking at people and as we're figuring out our role as the church in this world with so much, you know, just inequality and wealth inequality and, you know, racial and ethnic mm-hmm. problems throughout the world, um, to sort of keep keep this in mind where where it all began for Jesus on earth. I find it de- glorifying to, to, to Jesus that all of this is having to be re-brought up and it's all kind of at least for me, everything that I'm learning now is all kind of convalescing into one period of time. Uh, but I guess everyone could probably say that for whatever they're dealing with. But it just seems like both the the story of Nazareth, the story of Mary and Jesus, and the way that we treat those that are beneath us, those that aren't of the same skin color, the different socioeconomic classes is so... I feel like it might be more relevant today than it was even 100 years ago, mostly because everyone is so aware of it. And and I think it was always so swept under the rug. No, you know, I, I agree. And, you know, even as a woman of color in this country who was raised to be aware of our racial past, I do think that there's something going on right now that does seem different. And again, it's really um, 
sort of serendipitous that it's Martin Luther King Day. I think that for a lot of people, I know for a lot of my white friends, and even for a lot of my black friends, that there's this this concept that Martin Luther King came sort of like this racial savior, and then he fixed everything, and then it was okay. And so now all of that is in the past. And I think that you know some of what's been going on in the world lately has reminded people that that's that's not the case. That, you know, sort of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, I think even for a lot of black people, we thought, okay, that's where we got our legal rights. We got past Jim Crow. And I think black families started concentrating on other things. Um, Understandably, like getting higher levels of education, building wealth, um, you know, sort of moving into these suburban neighborhoods away from our traditional black culture. And I think there's been a bit of a wake-up call that we haven't been doing as well with this as we thought we were doing for both black people and white people. I think that there's been a wake-up call lately, and it's it's really fascinating to me. And I'm interested to see sort of where God is taking us right now, because I think there's a lot that's being stirred up. Yeah, I agree. I was speaking with an extended family member a few months ago, and I, I had asked them, I said, you know, how is it that our parents can believe so vehemently just things that are on on their face wrong, yet they raised a generation that lovingly, reproachfully say, Mom, you can't, no, that's not right. And I find it odd that, that a generation so staunchly one way has raised an entire generation that is socially, or at least it seems in my mind, socially looking for justice as opposed to the status quo. You talk in your book a bit about the the very little that we actually know about the biblical Mary or the historical Mary, and particularly I'm interested in the Gospel of James, mostly because you speak on it, but I also had never heard about this text until about my third year at college, just because it wasn't in my Bible. I didn't know that the Apocrypha was a thing until I accidentally found it. Uh, So can you speak on that a bit? Sure, sure. And, um, you know, I had a similar experience that the Apocrypha was just not a thing for me. It was nothing that I had any familiarity with. And when we look at our four Gospels in our version of the Bible, uh, we don't get much Mary. We really don't. And so, you know, I think that for Protestants, because we've been so so scripture-based and not into bringing anything extra into the picture, that that's part of the reason that Mary's gotten kind of the brush off, because there's very little of her there. But then when I looked at these other Gospels like James, where they really dove into her backstory a little bit more, it's it's really interesting that people were thinking about her um, at the time that these different Gospels were being written, and that someone felt that it was important enough to record Mary's backstory for, you know, for the early Christian church. And so the Gospel of James was just really fascinating to me. I had not heard any of the story um, of, you know, sort of Mary's Mary's parentage and her going into the temple and all of these things. It's sort of, in, in certain ways, what they put in here mirrored a bit of Jesus's childhood, of being born a chosen one. Uh, for Mary, it was in a different way, but still being a chosen one, being seen as a special child, being presented in a temple, and all of these different things. And so it's it's awful, and as I read it, it's difficult for me, you know, as somebody who was raised with a, a very strict inerrancy view of the Bible, to kind of figure out, well, where does this 
where does this fit into the narrative for me? But what I do is I take from it the fact that there have been Christians who felt it was important enough to write her story down and to give us this deeper, deeper look at her. And so, you know, I love reading the other Gospels. It's just good information to me. I think that as Christians, we read all sorts of stuff that's outside of, of Scripture. So reading these other Gospels, I think, can really enrich the way that we engage with the text that we have. And for someone like Mary, there's so little of her in our four Gospels that this helps me um, kind of imagine what her life was like and what her life was like bringing her to, you know, this visit by the angel and being given this crazy job. You know, something like the Gospel of James tells me why she might have been full of faith enough to say yes. So it's really interesting. And I also found it very interesting when I realized that the stories about Mary that we get in the Gospel of James really closely mirror the stories of Mary in the Quran, in the Islamic tradition, which is something that I knew nothing about. And, you know, so I I do not consider myself to be um, an Islamic scholar, but I, I did the best I could with learning and reading. And it was just so interesting to me how much of that overlapped with the Gospel of James. And so it really just teaches us that when the church was younger and when these other faiths were brewing in the middle in the Middle East that, you know, there was a lot of pieces in motion. You know, we didn't get this church dropped down here in America with this Bible written in English <laughs> in this order, that there were, you know, a lot of people that predated us with a lot of different experiences in mm-hmm. different cultures and religions. Uh, but that this story has remained important throughout all of it. What are some of those things, some of the some of the relatable or, or similar stories about Mary from the Quran to to our our scriptures? Well, Mary in the Quran, you know, it did line up with James. We got a little bit more of her backstory and the fact that she was, you know, just this very special, blessed girl. What I do like about Mary in the Quran is that we also get to hear a little bit more from her sort of internal monologue of what was going on during this pregnancy and during this birth. And in in the Quran, she takes on that question of Jesus's fatherhood a little more openly than she does in our scriptures. You know, we talk about the fact that Joseph didn't believe it, but then he was visited by an angel and he did. And we just kind of move on. Whereas um, in our scripture, in the, in the Quran, we hear about how she's worried that her family is going to be really shamed by this and how they're going to address it. And the fact that they do, they wonder, you know, where is this baby from? Has Mary shamed us? And one big difference in the Quran versus in the Gospels is that there's a miracle where the baby Jesus in the Quran speaks up for his mom and sort of uh, vouches for her purity and says, you know, this is who I am and you know, she was, you know, divinely conceived me. It's funny, when I was taking a class about Christ in seminary, there was actually a Muslim student in our class who we were talking about Jesus's birth in in our Gospels, in our four Gospels, and also the time that he got lost at the temple. And he's like, oh yeah, that sort of reminded me of that time that Jesus was a baby and, you know, spoke up defending Mary's honor. And we were all like, what? Like, <laughs> that doesn't say? happen, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're like, that doesn't happen, dude. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And so that's, um, 
you know, another one of those little things that sort of pushed me to want to learn more about Mary and the fact that she did, you know, mean a lot to these other people and other religions. It's like, whoa, like, I totally didn't know that. And I think that for all of the, you know, sort of religious uprising and the clashing that's gone on in our world for thousands of years, that it was really important for me to realize that Mary kind of represented all three of those Abrahamic faiths, that she brings it all together and in a place where there are still people living with all three of those faiths today. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's really fascinating that it's all more more connected than we realize. I think I may have passed over probably one of the bigger questions. What exactly is the Black Madonna? Well, the Black Madonna, the way that I approached it, it was sort of a play on words. A, a, a Black Madonna is known traditionally as uh, an image of Mary uh, an icon of some sort that depicts her with darker skin. So throughout the world, there have been these well-known icons of Black Madonnas. And it's always sort of asked, you know, why is it that their skin is dark? Was it some sort of a artistic or theological choice? Or sometimes you get explanations like, oh, the bronze on the statue just oxidized and it turned her black. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so, you know, this this concept of the Black Madonna is something that has bubbled up throughout Christendom. And there's one in Poland, I believe, who is especially famous, that people will make a pilgrimage to go to the the church where it's a plaque of a Madonna and a child. And it's got all sorts of jewels and things that have been added that have, you know, been encrusted on it over the years. And people will go to admire this statue Um a few times a day, actually, at this church in Poland. But I, as a black woman sitting here in America, black the way that I use that word, the way I identify myself as an African-American person, thought, well, black Madonna, that's kind of a cool phrase. Like, that's not what, you know, a black Madonna would be to me. So for myself, I really started to wonder what would a black Madonna from a black American woman's standpoint look like. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started to think about the fact that she would have come through motherhood and slavery. And I thought about, you know, sort of the lowliness of where Mary came from, what good comes out of Nazareth and how that, and also Jesus's death on the cross, that for black mothers in this generation, this fear of their children being uh, unfairly murdered or targeted for their race is something that I think most people would not relate to the story of Christ at all, but it made me view Mary as this mom who watched her son die this really violent and unjust death. And for me, living in the 21st century, that just evoked a lot of what's been going on in the news in the past decade with a lot of, you know, racially motivated shootings and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I set out to look for who was a black Madonna in the way that I'm black, you know, not the, the oxidized statues or whatever it is that was in that older tradition. I just took a hold of that term and thought that it really had some meaning and wanted to take it a step further for, for black women like myself. It's like you knew where I was going. That's literally my next question, uh, which starts with a quote <laughs> of yours, which is, you say in your book, black women has all have always been able to identify with Christ's death on a cross viewing his suffering as representative of their own. And I mean, they tried to justify things then. You know, they had and the option to get Barabbas, who was justifiably a horrible person. Or it seems right. it seems at least what, what you read, that he, he deserved to be in, 
in his position. So how then, as a woman, well, here, let me ask a different question. So do you have to be black to identify with Mary in that way? No, I don't think so. I think that anyone who, you know, for instance, comes out of our American Christian tradition and what this country has been through, uh, I think can and should possibly identify with Mary in this way, because I think that, you know, this is kind of, in the American church, this stuff happened, this stuff was present in the past, and there were pastors and churches who justified slavery, and there were pastors and churches who fought against slavery. And so for American Christianity, this is really mixed up in there. And, you know, I I strongly believe that black history is American history. It's our history. And so I think to take a hold of this idea of a black Madonna, of a mother who, you know, came through suffering, who came through a socially lowly place, it's an image that I think could be really honest and also really healing for the American church. So for me, I, I would welcome anyone, you know, thinking about this figure, I think it, it's a way that helps us think a little bit about the pain in our, in our racial past and in our Christian past. How should we, as a, as a people or as a nation or as a generation, lament? I, I spoke about this a bit in, in, at church yesterday where we were talking about joy, and someone brought up you know, Easter and the death and resurrection, and I was like, well, if you, all you do is skip straight to Easter, just skip straight to the resurrection, you miss the lament of Friday and the lament and the lack of faith and the the willingness to embrace fear of Saturday. So how should we or how how would you call us to lament in view of of how Mary acted when you know when she was rightfully upset at, at her son being you know just demolished? You know, I think that for many of us in the modern American church, I always use the phrase that we're we're sort of taught this golden ticket Christianity, uh, that God that Jesus died for our sins, that he's our personal savior and by taking these steps we get to the end, the cool part, that we get to to go to heaven and there's the joy and the resurrection. But I believe that Mary, remembering her, helps us remember the lament part of that story. It brings it back to earth. It brings it back to images of of real people, of real bodies. When you think about the fact that Mary gave birth to Jesus, she nursed this baby, she cared for this boy, she worried about him, she had dreams for him, she had real fears for him. And then at the end, she had to stand and watch him die in this very real and violent and bloody way. For us, I think it's just important not not to skip over that, um, you know, sort of for two reasons. For one reason that, you know, to skip that doesn't, encapsulate the whole story to to brush past the pain and want to go to the joy, I think really cheapens our story, really cheapens the story of our faith. And on the other hand, I also feel that it's really easy to want to jump to Jesus in the sky, to this, you know, sort of triumphant figure without remembering the fact that he was fully human on earth and paying careful attention to what he did, what he said during his life leading up to this, this terrible death and that he did face this death. So I think that remembering the lament, it's something that's, I think, come naturally to the black church. I think that there's a stereotype of uh, black churches of having a very boisterous and joyous worship, which is true. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there has always been this lament for, you know, what the black people have seen themselves going through 
on earth. And holding on to that part of the story, I think, just has so much value for all Christians. I think it's just really important. Yeah, I will say when I was at at college, um, I went to a few black churches every once in a while with some, some friends on the dorm, and those were the most fun services. And I wonder if they are more joyful because they view a a better, a more truthful version of lament, at least for their forefathers and their history and, and their faith. I never actually put those two together, but there might be some truth to that. So, yeah. At, towards the tail end of your book, and I will not be able to remember all the names, but there was like a Elizabeth Johnson and a, uh, gosh, I can't remember all the names, uh, yourself and, and many other women that are, are kind of forefront and pushing a message of a womanist theology uh, as as opposed to, I guess, a, a patriarchal theology. And and you, you say that we need a different hermeneutic for a womanist theology. And so I was hoping you could speak a bit about what, a, what that is, what a womanist theology is, as opposed to the traditional patriarchal view. And then what is that hermeneutic? How do we get there? And, and, and why, why do we need? It's not a good question, but but once we have it, what? how can it work side by side with what we already have? Or, or does it need to usurp that? Right. I think that a womanist theology is sort of an academic term that encompasses Black American women's Christianity and all of, all of what that means, and that it's its own sort of living, breathing thing um, outside of this big patriarchal church tradition that came out of Rome and out of Europe. I think that for black people, a lot of the time people will say, and people, and I've asked myself this, is this a faith that was just sort of thrust upon us by, by slavery? You know, we wouldn't have necessarily been Christians if we were still in Africa and this hadn't happened in this particular way. But I think that that's why grabbing onto this womanist theology is so so vitally important because it's it's a specific experience of Christianity um, that's just wrapped up with identity. And for me, you know, right or wrong, like that that's just the only way that I can come to the table. Um, my identity is just such a big part of my experience that that's sort of a starting place for my faith and the starting place for where I do my theology. So that's um, in a way what I see womanist theology as. And part of looking at things through a womanist lens is, is about the hermeneutic. Um, hermeneutic meaning, you know, kind of how you approach the scripture, how you approach the text. And what some people call it is approaching it with a hermeneutic of suspicion, which I think is really important. I think some people hear that and they might might shy away and think, oh, I guess she's saying don't to question the text or to want to change what the text means. But I think that to approach it as it is, um, without all of the baggage of other stuff and people with other agendas and what they've what they've brought to the text, coming to the text with our specific experience is an important thing in that we all we all have a kinship and an ownership to the text. It's not Christianity is not a white religion. That's what writing this book really helped me sort of heal and reconcile that this phase, it's not about whiteness. It's not about the white church. It's not about the way that scripture was interpreted to justify slavery and some things like that. It's something different entirely. I know um, the black theologian Howard Thurman was quoted as saying that his mom, I believe his mom, said that she didn't like the parts 
in uh, Paul's letters that people use to justify slavery. And she's like, well, I'm just not going to read that anymore. And, you know, I can understand wanting to feel that way. But for me, it's, it's reading it, it's grabbing it and saying, okay, this is what it says. Now what? We don't have to look at it from this one side um, through the eyes of the powers that have always sort of been in charge. So, you know, for me, it's a beautiful thing. And like I said, I see it as myself as a black woman, but I, I think that for all peoples to really sort of challenge what is in the text, what is in our faith, what was Jesus's message versus some of the other stuff that's been sort of unfairly attached to it. So that approaching the text uh, with that suspicion or also just with an open mind or with as little baggage as possible is, mm. is really key. For those that are listening, go and buy this book. Uh, I promise you it is it is fantastic and it it's heartbreaking and eye-opening, and you'll learn something, and I think it's important. So, Kate, Courtney, thank you for writing it, and I'm sure you've you've gotten vitriol from from half of the people that have read it, saying you're you're doing a disservice, and I'm sure you've gotten praise from others. But but I appreciate you writing it. I enjoyed it much. No, thank uh, you. I appreciate that. Yeah, and so obviously you can get the book on Amazon, uh, most likely through the publisher as well, and I'll have links to that in the show notes. Before I ask you that final question, where else would you point people to to engage? in this topic to engage in uh, in the world that we live in through this lens? Where would you point people to for that? Believe it or not, one of the first places I would point people to um, is Twitter. I think that I was telling someone that I think some of the best theology in the country right now is being done on Twitter. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Court Rhapsody. And shout out to me, and I can maybe think of some people that I think would be good to follow. There are some people doing really good work there who are real people who want to, you know, engage and, and and talk about this stuff. Also, there's a whole slew of academic work by black women. If you just look womanist theology up on Amazon, you'll find, you know, people like Emily Towns. She's a, a great ethicist and Katie Cannon, who um, was a theologian who I had the opportunity to hear speak recently, who just has some really powerful things, you know, they're out there. And so just, you know, look, look a little further. If you're in school, question your syllabus, you know, look and see who who's writing all this stuff. Are, are these people looking all too much the same? And, mm-hmm. and maybe inquire, you know, there are other, other thinkers out there. There are, there's Latin thought, there's liberation thought. There's just so much out there. Just, you just have to look and find it. And then, so final question, what is one thing that, that those listening or those that will listen can do either with their children, with themselves, with their church, that would be one thing that we could take forward into the coming days, weeks, years, months that would help to repair our history, but also help to grow the kingdom? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, just one thing. <laughs> I think that, you know, I'm going to tie it back uh, to the lectionary, to remembering the origin of what started all of this, that Jesus came from Nazareth, that he was born to a socially lowly family, and the fact that God chose that for a reason, and to not forget that as we move forward um, as a people, as a church, you know, it, glorifying the kingdom is, is is a wonderful thing, and it's very attractive to look at it from this place of everything is going to be okay, everything's already okay, but to really approach our faith uh, with an openness and with an honesty, and I think remembering where this story began of, of this woman Mary and her son Jesus 
is an easy way to, to, to keep challenging our thinking in the church. Well, I think that's a great spot to end. Courtney, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you for your book. Uh, we look forward to the next time we can talk with you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Seth. Music for today's episode was provided with permission from artist Cassidy Best. Please support her work. She has albums in Spotify and in iTunes. Uh, You can find more information about her at her website, www.cassidybest.com. The music is fantastic, and I think you'll enjoy it. so much for listening i would ask for your feedback please email us at can i say this at church at gmail.com interact with us on facebook and twitter Uh, your feedback only helps to make the show better if you have liked in any way or if you engaged in any way please consider going to our patreon page you can find that at can i say this at church.com there's a big huge button up there Your donations help so much, and your help will ensure that we can continue to have these open, honest conversations. We'll see you in the next episode.